Good morning. Welcome to uh, Christ Community Church, our Olathe campus. My name is Chris. I have the privilege of being our pastor to students. Hopefully right now, not too many of you are thinking, I really hope Chris gets struck with silence like Zachariah so he can just get out of here, right? Um, Actually, with that thought in mind, because I would rather get struck with silence than have my words rather than God's words uh, be spoken this morning. Why Why don't we pray for this morning? Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us and that you're still continuing to speak to us. May these words be your words. May they move our hearts. May they move our minds, our actions, our lives to a deeper appreciation, love, and commitment for you. In your name we pray. Amen. Hopefully you've all perked up from your uh, tryptophan-induced turkey comas, um, and you've come here not looking just for a nap after a weekend full of shopping for things that they've convinced us are on our need list and are extremely cheap, but because we've got a really fun and exciting story this morning to go through and a great series that we're starting uh, out with this morning as we head into Advent. We've just finished a short series in the book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk or who knows how to pronounce it. I'm not even sure, but you know, it's one of those short little books where if you were a kid and you're growing up in the church and they did sword drills, you know, find the passage as quick as you can in the Bible and they call one from Habakkuk, you're like, I'm toast. I'll never find that one. You can just kind of give up. But Habakkuk is this great little uh, story, this great testament from a minor prophet who is lamenting to God saying, why won't you rescue your people? And he's complaining. And I think the way that he, uh, he ends this, this, uh, this complaint, this lament to God in, in Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 16 is actually a great lead-in for this Advent series. Because Habakkuk writes and says in verse 16, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I quietly wait for the day of trouble to to come upon the people who invade us. Quietly Habakkuk waits, and wait he did. 400 years passed between the time of Habakkuk and the time of this morning's passage. 400 years of silence from God. 400 years of hope and waiting for a conquering king to come and drive out Israel's enemies and restore them to their proper place as God's chosen people. But Luke is also writing his gospel to a people who are quietly waiting as well. He's writing to his believers who in the first century are feeling their faith tested. They're being challenged and they're being persecuted and they're starting to wonder if what they believe is actually true. Because he's writing 60 years after Jesus was born and then another 30 years after Jesus' resurrection and kind of surprise departure. And they've been waiting with bated breath thinking, oh, he's coming back any minute. And now he still hasn't. Kind of like just how we are still waiting today. And this week, even being Thanksgiving week, as great as it is, it's been a challenging week for many of us and for our country, hasn't it? Despite how you view or how you think about the events that have taken place in Ferguson and all around the country as a result, it's a 
crystal clear reminder that our country is deeply broken and deeply hurting. And only the return of Jesus will fully restore it. And so many this week have sat quietly waiting and saying, come Lord Jesus, come. And so we wait. And for many of us, we wait just because of other circumstances that are are going on in our daily lives. Hurts that we're experiencing or, or just doubt that arises for a lot of different reasons. We all, many of us are feeling like our belief on a lot of things is challenged. You know, we question what we believe, whether it's because of cancer or illness or death that someone in our our family or friends have experienced or relational conflict or just relationships that aren't what we want them to be and hope them to be or just normal doubt that we experience on a daily basis. And if you're not experiencing doubt, If you're not having your belief challenged, should you be? Because the story we're looking at this morning is the kind that if you heard about it today on the internet, you'd go to Snopes.com in a hurry just to see if it was real and believable. Because on the surface, it sure doesn't sound like it's plausible, does it? Last week, or two weeks ago, we had a we got a great prayer card from a student that was sitting in the service with their parents, something that we love here at Christ Community. And before you start freaking out, I asked her for permission to show her card and use her name. So if you fill out a prayer card this morning, you don't have to worry about it showing up in a sermon or, or on the screen afterward, uh, during a sermon, all right? But Alexa, fifth grader, sent in a card uh, to us as a staff asking some really normal questions that I think a lot of us ask on a daily basis. You know, she writes, how do we know our, ours is the right religion? How do we know what the Bible says is real? How do we know Buddha is real and not God? And I think those are great questions. Ones that we ask regularly, but maybe are, are a little afraid to articulate out loud to other people for fear or embarrassment or just we don't want other people to know that we doubt. Because sometimes these feelings of doubt and wanting to ask questions can happen because God works in ways that are hard to understand. But the thing is, is God is always surprising, but never inconsistent. God is always working in surprising ways, but never inconsistent ones. That's where I want to start this morning, is God has always worked in surprising ways. And he is working in surprising ways, and he will continue to work in surprising ways. So let's start with this idea that God has always worked in surprising ways. You know, we could play a game if we wanted, right? We could take the Bible, and we could flip to almost any page in this book, and we could read some weird, bizarre story, right? Talking donkeys? The Red Sea getting parted, Daniel not getting eaten by hungry lions, his friends not getting barbecued in a fiery furnace. You know, we could come up with a huge list of just weird and hard to believe stories, couldn't we? And the story that we read and heard about this morning is actually not that different. But what also makes that story really remarkable is that it fits seamlessly within this larger story, so much so, so consistently with the rest of the story, that we shouldn't be surprised 
at what we read and what we hear at all. Luke starts his gospel saying that he's writing to his friend Theophilus, right? His most excellent friend, which, come on, admit it. How many of you are like me and the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear that is Bill and Ted's most excellent adventure? <laughs> come on, right? And he's writing to Theophilus in verses 1 through 4, and then he says he's compiling a narrative history based on the accounts of eyewitnesses, which is, I think, important starting this hard-to-believe story because he's saying... We have proof you can believe what you're reading here. He's saying this isn't just some story, this rumor, random event. Luke is choosing to write history for a specific purpose, starting with a specific historical event. This is just not some random idea that he's starting with. And the specific event Luke is choosing to start with in verse 5 involves Zacharias or Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And yet, starting here by doing, by starting with Zechariah and Elizabeth, Luke is linking them with all of Israel's history by mentioning their connection to Aaron, the very first priest of Israel. In addition to linking them to Aaron, he also says that Zechariah and Elizabeth were childless. They were righteous, but childless. And in that culture, that would have called into question their righteousness or their obedience. Because Israel believed children were a blessing and that if you were righteous, you would be blessed with many children. And yet, Zechariah and Elizabeth, being righteous, had no children. And I know just that, that detail alone is going to make this morning's story um, sting and feel a little bit personal. Because I know many people in our church struggle with that same challenge. And I want you to know that I don't trivialize that or, or minimize it. Because my family, myself and my wife, we know, that, we know that struggle personally. Struggled with it for many years. But Luke making note of the fact that Zechariah and Elizabeth are faithful yet childless also links them with generations of Israel's past. It's so much a part of Israel's past. It's woven into the fabric of who they are as a people. Three successive generations from which the whole nation of Israel dealt with the same challenge. Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel. All three successive generations struggled with not having children as early as they wanted to and had to wait until God chose to bless them with them. Hannah longed for a son for years, prayed fervently for a child. And then when she was given a son with Samuel, she promptly, promptly gave him to the temple to be raised as a priest. Samson's unnamed parents faced the same struggle, prayed for a child, and then were given Samson. And there's many others in the Bible. All are families who were childless yet faithful. And seen by others as a result, less because of it. And yet God chose to use them and bless them with a child. And that their family and their children would bless Israel in significant ways. So this is Zechariah and Elizabeth's story, but it's not just their story. It's all of Israel's history. And so it's a, history is important. N.T. Wright writes in, the meaning of Je- in, the, in his book, The Meaning of Jesus, and stick with me because this is a long quote, 
but I think it's a really important one. N.T. Wright writes, history prevents faith from becoming fantasy. Faith prevents history from becoming mere antiquarianism. Historical research being always provisional cannot ultimately veto faith, though it can pose hard questions that faith, in order, in order to retain its integrity precisely as Christian faith, must struggle to answer and may well grow strong through answering. Faith being subject to the vagaries of personality and culture cannot veto the historical enterprise. It can't simply say, I don't like the Jesus you write about, so you must be wrong. But it can put hard questions to history, not least on the large topic of the origins of Christianity. And history may be all the better for trying to answer them. What he's saying there is history and faith complement each other. They strengthen each other. They help us understand the other. They're not mutually exclusive. And so we must remember this morning that what we read in this book is more than just a history of what we believe. It's more than just the reporting of eyewitnesses of a bunch of weird stories. It's more than just stories that we have faith in. It's, in the, it's the accounts of, per, of participants in a grand and surprising story of how God has been at work and is consistent in how he works. As a priest and an expert in Jewish law and history, Zechariah should have expected this. He would have known this. We should expect it. Zechariah didn't have the benefit of the Advent story coming to its completion. And our reading of how we think it's going to end in the book, or how we know it will end in the book of Revelations, he didn't have that. We do. We have that benefit. We should know and expect that God has been working in surprising ways, but consistent ways. And so to Alexa, who gave us this card asking how we can believe, and for anybody else, including myself, wondering, you know, how can I be sure of what I believe? We need to look to this grand and surprising story that spans thousands of years of documented history, supported by world history and archaeology, showing of how God has been at work. So the question I have to ask myself, that we have to ask ourselves, that you have to ask yourself, is do I regard this just as mere history? Or do I see it as a grand and surprising and living story that has been unfolding for thousands of years? Is it mere history? Or is this a part of my story? Is it a part of your story? And not only is God, not only has God been at work in the past in surprising and consistent ways, Luke is telling a story that's unfolding in his present. It's a story of God's present action, not just in history, but in a story that's still happening. And Luke moves to the present day, his present day, in, in verse 8. And he starts to tell this unfolding story of Zechariah the priest. Zechariah was a priest. He's one of about 20,000 priests in Israel during this time in history. And there's 24 divisions of priests, and, he was, and Zechariah was in the Abijah division. 
And each division served at the temple twice a year. And so if you do the math, that's about 800 priests serving once, uh, twice, two weeks throughout the year. So 800 priests on duty each week at the temple. A little bit crowded, a little bit busy probably. But practically speaking, what that means is for the sacred duties that needed to be performed at the temple, with 800 priests there every week, there wasn't enough sacred duties to go around for every priest. And so lots were drawn to choose the priest who would perform these sacred duties. And only one, only, a priest was only allowed to perform a sacred duty once in his lifetime, and many priests never got the chance because their lot was just never drawn. And so when we read that Zechariah was chosen to burn incense and go to the altar and offer a prayer, he's getting called up to the big leagues. This is the culmination of his entire priestly career. This is his 15 minutes. Zechariah is about to go viral, right? He's probably been working on which prayer and which benediction he would give after burning incense. He's probably been working and thinking about that moment for years. He's got it memorized, how it's going to go. He's got it ingrained in his mind. He can see it perfectly. He's probably thinking to himself, I don't have a child. I don't have a son. But at least now I have this. And so Zechariah goes into the holy place, and he's all alone, and he's making his offering, and he's giving his prayer, and then it happens. I have this little game that I like to play with uh, Rick. Rick is a high school student who works here. Um, we call him our grunt uh, or our goon, right? Because he, he works a few hours a week in, late in the afternoons moving chairs around for us because I don't want to, all right? Um, and he works here late in the afternoon when no one else is around, except for me. So I like to play this game with Rick. Rick a lot of times works with headphones on because it's moving chairs, right? It's boring. I'm, I'm assuming he's listening to like a, one of my sermons on, on his iPod, right? Of course, or Nathan's, let's be real. So Rick has got headphones on, he's working. I like to play this game where I sneak into the room here and I'll even crawl behind chairs he's already got set up. And I'll get as close as I can to him, like all ninja style. And, you know, I'm not that quiet. So thank goodness he's got headphones on. I'll get as close as I can. I'll wait for him to turn my direction. And I'll stand up. I'll, hey, Rick. I'll see how bad I can scare him. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> Except now that Rick is doing it to me. And I've got a weak bladder. So... It's kind of what I imagine is going on here with Zechariah, right? He's at the altar, he's saying his prayer, he's burning the incense, he's in the zone, right? He's focusing, and all of a sudden he hears, hey, Zechariah, can you imagine what's going through his mind? He's like, there's not supposed to be anybody in here. How is this happening to, on the one day where my lot was drawn? And then he looks and he sees it's, the angel of the Lord. And Luke said, Zechariah was troubled. You think? <laughs> really? The angel says to Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. And, you know, and it makes me wonder, was Zechariah, what was he praying for? Was he praying for a son? 
I don't think it's likely that he was because his reaction to later to the angel is that he's kind of written that idea off. I think Zechariah was praying for the deliverance of Israel, that God would deliver them from their enemies. So the angel says to Zechariah, your wife is going to give you a son. You're going to name him John. And I can't get into the name right now. I'd love to, but that's a sermon two weeks from now. And then Nathan will give me a lecture about blowing a sermon for two weeks from now. But not only are you going to name him John, not only are you going to do a happy dance when you get your son, but many people will rejoice at his coming. He will be great before the Lord, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we have to remember, this is before Pentecost, and so before Pentecost, anyone who is filled with the Holy Spirit, that was a sign that they were going to be great prophet. And the angel even compares him to Elijah, who is up there with Moses in the pantheon of greats in Israel's history. Then he says also that his son John will be someone who doesn't drink alcohol or cut his hair. Kind of, you know, it evokes images of Samson or of Nazarene culture, which is also another sign that his son would have a unique and special task. And Zechariah, as a priest, would have known all these things and would have been linking them up in his mind. He would have known also that the last Israelite to have a special and unique task like this, who was also full of the Spirit, came 400 years before this in Malachi. And at the end of Malachi, in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Malachi writes, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their their fathers. Which sounds a bit like the way the angel described Zechariah's son to him. So this is the news that Zechariah gets, and then things get a little interesting, don't they? Zechariah, in all his wisdom decides to get a little bit petulant with the angel, right? He says to the angel, I'm old, and so is my wife. How do I know this is the truth? And the angel says to Zechariah, you can know this because I am Gabriel, which means man of God or God is my warrior, and I stand in the presence of God, not just one day a year in the temple burning incense, but for all of eternity, and I was sent to give you a message. So so now a word of advice, and my kids at home will tell you, I tend to like, the advice I tend to give tends to be fairly obvious, right? So, but, but a word of advice. If you're going about your day, whether it's a normal day or it's one of these extraordinary once-in-a-lifetime days, and you suddenly find an angel standing next to you, it's probably best not to disagree or doubt what the angel tells you, right? And certainly not a good idea to verbally challenge him. Zechariah does, and as a result, he gets exactly what he asks for. He gets a sign. Can you imagine the look on Gabriel's face when Zechariah starts with him. When Zechariah turns to the angel and says, yeah, I don't know, 
Thanks, but no thanks. I, I imagine it's probably the look sometimes that we as parents can get on our face. That look that's somewhere between consternation, somewhere between bemusement, and somewhere also a little bit of, I want to squash you like a bug. Right? I would have loved to see the look on Gabriel's face. But I know what you're thinking now, too, because it's what I think. I think it's Zacharias, and I'm like, what an idiot. How could you not believe this? You should know better, man. You're a priest. But wait a second. I think what we do, what we do every day is just like what Zachariah does in this moment. We all doubt every day. We have the benefit of, th- of thousands of years of history to rely on, and yet we, we doubt that God is working for us in astounding ways in my favor. Every day we doubt that. And we have the benefit of the Advent story, like I said before, that Zachariah didn't. We have proof, and yet we doubt. And I know what you're thinking also. You're like, yeah, Chris, Chris he was a priest, and, and you're a pastor. You should know better, but I have an excuse. I have a normal job and a mostly normal family and live in a normal neighborhood. But we're all like Zachariah. Peter makes sure we know that. In 1 Peter 2 verse 5, Peter writes, You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a living priesthood. I don't have an excuse. I'm just like Zachariah. I am part of the priesthood now as a believer. And so these kind of questions that we have to ask every day, or or there are these questions we ask every day, I ask them, you ask them, Alexa asked them with her card that she gave to us. How can I know this is true? And hopefully when you ask that question, you ask seeking truth and seeking understanding and seeking intimacy with God. Because I think Zachariah asked that question not as a means to understanding, but as a challenge. Less is doubt and more is disbelief. And some of us aren't asking those questions leading to understanding, and we need to. I think sometimes I'm guilty of of what I'm going to call over-believing. Do you blindly accept the veracity of what you read here without considering the, suppl- the surprising plot and trajectory of the story? Without considering that you are a part of this story? Somehow believing in the story without believing that it actually involves you in any way. We need to ask questions that lead to that kind of understanding. Are you asking the right questions? Are you asking the right questions that lead you to seeing the surprising ways in which God is working today? And the surprising ways He's working that are inviting you to participate in His story and in the way that He's working. And are you telling others about your part in the story and retelling this story? Or are you guilty of underbelieving? Do you see the story? Do you see how God's working? 
and yet you're stubborn and critical, not wanting God to involve you in his story, preferring to write your own story. Instead, are you looking for reasons to not believe? Are you asking the right questions? Are you asking questions that will lead you to accepting the way that God is working for you today? A band that is, uh, I was going to say quite popular, but it's extremely popular in my house with my oldest daughter, describes the act of faith and belief like this. Uh, They sing in their song, Car Radio, there's no faith, or there's faith and there's sleep. We need to pick one because faith is to be awake, and to to be awake is for us to think, and for us to think is to be alive. And I love the way that they describe faith in that way, because faith isn't just this cognitive ascent that we experience. Zechariah was righteous, but his faith had fallen asleep. Are you at risk of falling asleep in your faith? Are you asking the right questions that cause you to wake up and to think and to be alive in God's story? Faith moves, it breathes, it lives, it acts, it grows. Is your faith doing that? Or is it asleep like Zacharias? Because God is working in surprising ways. He's, mo- he's always moving his story forward. Are you asking the kind of questions that move, that move you to a deeper understanding, a deeper belief in his story, and move you to see yourself as a participant in that story? Because his story continues. It doesn't just stop here today. And God will continue to work in surprising ways. In ways that seek the good of his people. Because we all know that this story is about Zachariah and Elizabeth, but it isn't just about them, and not just about their son. Because the irony here, the surprising way in which God was presently working for Zachariah and Elizabeth through the coming of their son was that he was also a sign of God's future and coming work for the benefit of all of Israel and for his people and for us today. The story isn't always about us, but it always benefits all of God's people. Do you believe that his work is good, is seeking your good? See, Zechariah doesn't just, he doesn't believe the angel. And as a result, he gets what he wants, right? He gets his sign. The angel of God gives him a sign of what he says will come true. He says to Zechariah, okay, you've finished your once-in-a-lifetime duty. You're about to give the benediction to all the people gathered at the temple. You've been rehearsing this moment for your whole life, but now I'm gonna make your, I'm gonna, the sign I'm going to give you is silence. You won't be able to finish your job. How's your day going now? The people are gathered, and it says they're waiting for Zechariah, Right? And it says they're waiting so long that they begin to wonder if something is wrong. Kind of like the way that the people of Israel had been waiting so long for God that Zechariah started to wonder if something was wrong with God after 400 years. Zechariah, with his voice taken away from him, is unable to complete his priestly duties. 
a sign that his, prom, his promised son will her, herald the coming of a new and better priest who would be able to complete the priestly duties that Zechariah couldn't complete that day. Zechariah's silence is a sign that God gives his people after 400 years of silence that the silence is over and he is working. And that he's working and it is good. Their son will be born and will herald the coming of a king. But we know too that it's not all joy and rainbows and bunnies for their son, John the Baptist, either, right? Because he's finished heralding the coming of Jesus. And he's in prison. And we can read in Matthew chapter 11, verse 3, that even John the Baptist asks Jesus, Is it you or should we look for another? The one person chosen to herald the coming of Jesus even experiences doubt. But he believes. He believes that Jesus is the one, and as a result, he suffers for it and he's beheaded. God's present action for Zechariah and Elizabeth through the, breath, through the blessing of their son brings future action for all of Israel through the coming of, Messiah, through the coming of the Messiah because God will continue to work in surprising ways. Even 30 years after Jesus has made his sudden departure and the people are waiting. Luke is, actively, is asking his readers to reflect on thousands of years of history so that even in the absence of Jesus, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, they can trust and know that God is still working for them. He has made good on his promises, and he will continue to make good on his promises. It just might be in some surprising ways. And so this beautiful and weird story serves as a reminder to us as well. It serves as a reminder to you, and it serves as a reminder to me that God's faithfulness and his continuing work throughout history and in our lives and in the future. It serves as a reminder for us to be faithful and patient and to be trusting in his faithfulness and to be participants, invited to be participants in his grand and unfolding and surprising story. And if it seems like he isn't working, we must believe as history, as this whole book shows us, it's often that he's working in, in such surprising ways that it's hard to see that he's working. And so perhaps the only way to truly sense and see and experience the surprising way in which God is working in our lives today is to be a little bit more like Elizabeth. Near the end of this passage, it says that Elizabeth, when he, she found out the news, she withdrew from, for five months. In that time when she should be celebrating with everyone that I finally have a son, and oh yeah, my son's going to be way better than your son, she withdraws and goes into silence to reflect on God's work in her life. You know, a world where all of us have the opportunity to amplify our thoughts and our ideas, and our opinions to massive worldwide audiences through technology and social media. Perhaps we, perhaps I need to spend a little bit more time in silent reflection on the work of God in the past, in the present, and in the future. 
If you're looking for some good resources for how you might be able to do that, on our church website, we have a link for a free downloadable Advent resource that's been written by John Piper. Now, it looks like a really good one yet. I haven't had a chance to go through it yet. Or I'd encourage you to check out the website adventconspiracy.org. They do some wonderful work. and have some great resources for, for individuals and for families. Are you able to see the surprising way in which God has been working for your good for thousands of years? And that He is consistent in His surprising work for you, for me, and for us. Are you able to see and trust that God has been working for you? Because following, following Him doesn't mean that we're going to have an, an easy life, does it? Actually, it promises suffering. And many here today know that, know it pretty acutely. And sometimes that suffering results in doubt. Maybe even unbelief like Zacharias. I hope not. But even Zachariah and his unbelief was given a chance uh, to believe again. He was through, through discipline and correction that, that was provided. Zechariah lost his ability to speak. And we'll see what happens in a few weeks, though, that when his son was born, he doesn't just regain his ability to speak. He believes and he worships as a response. Are you able to see that despite how your life is going today, that God is working for you today? And working in surprising ways that are for our good. Because he is. And so as we begin the Advent season and our preparation for the season, are you able to trust that God will continue to work for you? Are you willing to accept his invitation to be a participant in this unfolding and surprising story of his? Maybe this season, as a sign of your trust and your willingness to not just believe the story, but to be a participant in it, maybe we, maybe we as people and as individuals should practice the discipline of silence on a regular occasion. Quieting our hearts and quieting our voices like Elizabeth for the coming of our king. Because as Daryl Bach wrote in uh, his commentary on the book Luke, we can never go on cruise control with God. And it feels like that's a bit what Zechariah was doing. One sense is that Zechariah needed a fresh lesson of faith to avoid such a slow motion spiritual fall. The fact that Zechariah doubted the angel's word meant that he was already at risk. What God promises, he will perform. Only he will do it in his time and sometimes in surprising ways. Let's pray. Father, sometimes I wish you were really predictable. Sometimes I wish uh, I knew what you were going to do before you did it so that I could respond accordingly. Uh, but Father, in your wisdom, you know that if you did it that way, then we'd all be at risk of thinking it was all about us and that we were good enough apart from you. So for you working in your surprising ways is just one more awesome way you're inviting us to trust you, to trust your work, to trust that you are working for our good, that you always have been, that you are, and you always will be. 
Lord, we're weak, though. Um, it's hard to believe sometimes that you are working for our good when the world is such a mess, when sometimes our, feels, uh, when our lives feel like they're such a mess. And so we pray for trust. That we will trust that even when it looks like you are nowhere present in our lives, that you are actively working. And Lord, for those of us who, whose lives are going pretty awesome right now, I pray that we will have the ability to see how you are working for us and that our lives are, are going well because you are blessing us and moving in our lives and, uh, accordingly and that it's not just because of what we're doing. Lord, help us to lean on you, to trust you, to rely that you are working in surprising ways for our good. Father, we thank you for who you have been, who you are, and who you will continue to be. Amen.